On this podcast, our teen hosts discuss real life with real people. We hope to inspire others by sharing stories of individuals and pairs of friends who have dealt with mental health challenges or just the ups and downs of life and discussing what brought them healing and inner peace. In these episodes, we also talk about the role that friendship and connection plays in a person's emotional well-being. Subscribe to this podcast to be a part of our Friends on Air family. Friends on Air! and I'm a senior in high school and I am a part of the Predictive Circle. I'm on multiple post committees, so it would be too long for me to go into discussion. But um, yeah, I'm a part of Predictive Circle and I do a lot of different things. Awesome. Hi, I'm Allie. I am so excited for this episode. I've been looking forward to it for some time now. I am the wellness coordinator and the Friendship Circle, which means that I plan programs and activities around wellness, mental health, and inclusion. And uh, really make sure that when people come in the door, that they feel as welcome as humanly possible. That is my goal. Aw, that's so sweet. Mm-hmm. I like that new, like, little addition. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Ayala. I'm the team member and partnership coordinator at the Friendship Circle, which means I get to hang out and spend time with the awesome teens at Friendship Circle. Um, and it's such a pleasure. And I'm excited to hear where this conversation goes. Welcome to our guest. Today, we have someone very special joining us to share her story and her experience, and we feel lucky to have her with us. So, what is your name, where are you from, and what do you do? Oh, what do you do is such an open-ended question. Um, I'm Gabriel McMorland, um, she, her, and uh, I, I've lived in Pittsburgh for most of my life, and I was born here. Um, but I'm, when I was growing up, I most spent most of the time uh, at my dad's house in the suburbs of Rochester, New York, which is sort of near Buffalo, but is smaller than Pittsburgh. Um, and right now, uh, I'm 41. So I graduated high school in the year 2000. Uh, they said it was going to be really futuristic. And then I noticed when we were in elementary school, they're like, you're going to be the class of 2000. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and then by the time we got to like 1996, they were just like, oh, I don't know. Good luck. So, um, and. Wasn't it a conspiracy that like the world was going to end? Oh, yeah. The Y2K, the Y2K, they were like, oh, the computers are all going to accidentally shut off all the power. Sorry, everyone. It was in the newspaper. It was like they told everyone to buy bottled water and stuff. And then, um, and it didn't happen. So then, uh, yeah. And so I graduated in 2000, um, and I've been living in Pittsburgh since then. I'm a trans woman and also, uh, I'm blind. I started losing my vision, um, when I was just before I turned 19. So in 2001, um, and it's, it's still getting worse. It's just very slowly getting worse forever. The next question I have is, in one sentence, what are you here to talk about in general? You know, I'm not sure that I'm um, so much an expert on anything in particular, but I've done a lot of, um, I've really been learning a lot of stuff in the last several decades of being alive, and it's been incredibly helpful to me Uh 
And I really love any chance I have to share uh, my experiences in case they're helpful to anyone else. Um, I know that for me, uh, adjusting, psychologically adjusting uh, and socially adjusting to my disability, I was even though it's been 20 something years, I'm still in the process of doing that. And um, in a very different way, coming to the realization that I'm a trans woman um, has also been a decades long process. Uh, and then I've also been involved in a lot of um, a lot of activism and community organizing. I don't know if there's a lot to talk about here, but I really uh, I also enjoy playing music and I'm usually in at least one band. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's a fun fact I didn't know about you. That's actually so much to talk about. We work with hours and stuff right there. Yeah. We're very into the, uh, when it comes to mental health healing, mm-hmm. um, we talk a lot about creative outlets and we actually host an open mic night, which we, ha- we have one of those coming up, one of those programs. Oh. So actually music is like a huge part of, um, I guess, part of our discussions in general. So it's totally relevant, and that's that's a super. Do you play an instrument? Uh, yeah, I like um, I play the bass, and so I can do some things with some other instruments. But the the bass, I feel pretty fluid with. And now, that when you mentioned healing, I um, I'm, I've been realizing in the last five ten years that um, a lot of the time when I was younger, I didn't. I had a lot of trouble identifying my emotions or just certainly describing them to other people, but even identifying them to myself. Um, and I think I was able to like kind of process and express emotions through music um, in ways that I really couldn't verbally at the time. That's really cool. All right. So, um, Gabriel, I'm going to go into my next question. Yeah. Um, if you could make a new law in D.C., what do you think it would be? Ooh, just one. Just one. Or, what yeah, do you no, feel just one. I'm with, that. I'm with it. Abby's more flexible. She said whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel like there's some, um, you know, some classics that people have been asking for since before I was born. Uh, that would be pretty good for everyone, um, like um, universal health care. Uh, you know, I've talked to so many people now where they're like traveling in other countries, including countries that have so much less um, <clears throat> less money overall as a country or um, than the U.S. And they go to the hospital and it's free or um, EMS shows up at their place they're staying and takes care of them and it's free or they have to go somewhere and it's like 50 bucks or whatever. And then like, um, you know, here people are constantly being bankrupted by it. Um, or, um, ending up with sort of permanent life changing, uh, health problems and disabilities that probably wouldn't have needed to happen if they had regular access to healthcare. So that's one. Um, but there's so many, you know, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the things that people are organizing around and asking for, whether that's like amnesty for immigrants or um, 
um, not jailing people for um, drug possession or um, addiction or uh, having a right to housing so that people who are houseless can live indoors um, or universal health care. All of these things um, people have been asking for for several generations. Yeah, absolutely. I could get behind that. Um, so before we go deeper into our discussion, can you start by telling us a little bit more about you and who you are and like what, what are some of the things that you are passionate about? Wait, that would be what you'd answer. Oh, I'm curious. Mm, yeah. Because you can make a lot. Um, I think for me, it would be like, you know, like better mental health support for not only like autistic individuals, but all across like different mm-hmm. needs, like all different types of neurodiversity, all types of different Down syndrome and all these like I think the law would like it, I would want something that has to do with like just better neurodiversity, like in support of or like just a better general health care for like people with all types of different needs who struggle to be able to live life on their own without a struggle or who try to want to live as independently as possible and knowing that they have to rely on someone like just having a better health care system who like mm-hmm. just kind of makes life a little bit easier and having better like housing for people with different needs depending on like whatever circumstances may arise like just having better access to things in general yeah thank yeah that's really insightful because like you could take some fraction of that and literally give everyone in the entire country a free therapist Mm-hmm. and that. think about how much less violence there would be then I love that. I don't even know if these stats are like updated this is something I heard when I was in grad school that about 90% of people who are jailed have some sort of mental mm-hmm. health issue yeah. like whether or not it's a disorder like something is going on that could be treated that could be helped outside of you know so I think that's amazing. I love your guys' answers yeah. already. Like, together, you're changing the world. Yeah. I mean, on your own, you're changing the world. Yeah. Together, you're really the team. This is very interesting. Um, Do you have any, anything that you want? I know you're um, very politically You know what? My, like, when it comes to actual, like, legislation, it's hard for me to come up with you know, something, like, actual. I think I'm too much of an idealist in a way, and I just... <laughs> If I could pass a law, an imaginary law, where mm-hmm. everyone had to just be kinder, <laughs> then that's what it would be. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, I can imagine just, it almost sounds like a, like a magical spell where you're yeah. just about to be, be kind. You just have to like, be quiet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like even just like think before you talk, you know, mm-hmm. maybe I would say let's go back to the basics as a society and... Um, just implement some of the core values that we naturally have as, I mean, I think we see with children, like so carefree and loving and, and happy. And obviously life is not always like that, but to kind of, let's bring some, some, um, what's the word? Like childhood energy Mm -hmm. (laughs) to, uh, all of us. I actually, somebody was recently saying, maybe it was you, Allie. Um, like adults need recess too. (laughs) And I think it's really true. Like, like why can't adults in workplace settings or in, in, you know, um, post high school education systems and stuff like that. Like we, I think we equally need a break. We equally need to run around the playground or do whatever it is that, um, causes us to be, you know, 
less stressed people. Um, so that would be my other laws: instituting recess for mm-hmm. adults, <laughs> adults in the world. Okay, yes. I like that. <laughs> All right, so oh, here, wait, let's just hear Allie's. Sorry, oh, Allie, I keep cutting you off. Oh, sure. no, you no, you can. No, 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 I keep. Okay. Okay. Um, well, Allie's is very timely, probably with where she is as a human. Um, but I have an eight-month-old daughter at home, mm-hmm. and um, some days. I think it's not quite natural for uh, my husband to not be with her all the time, for me to not be with her. Mm-hmm. And I think there really needs to be an expansion, not on like maternity leave being a year, but paternity leave. Oh, yeah. So, um, I think it's just as natural and it's needed just as much that, you know, um, both parents are bonding with the, ch- with the child. It's actually kind of wild that like there is that difference now that put it that way mm-hmm. well and it's reinforcing this kind of idea that it's all the woman's job to do all of the Correct. Yeah. Uh, domestic good. work and child rearing right they're like why would you need time off for the father right it's gotta work <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i know some places don't even have that time off um or it can be as little as like six weeks which is just like not enough in general to get back and get working and figuring out um, for your child care. Yeah, so these are some, some definitely important answers. Yes. I feel like we could talk about them for longer. So thanks for bearing with us, Abby. I just wanted to <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fascinating. This is the fun part where me and Allie get to give our little answers and then, mm-hmm. and then we're quiet for the rest of the <laughs> Sorry. So before we go deeper into our discussion, um, can you start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and like who you are and what are some of the things that you find that you're passionate about? So some of the, well, let's see. Uh, I'm 41. I started losing my vision in 2001 due to a genetic condition that no one knew would happen. So that was a very uh, traumatizing surprise. Um, And it really took me years to process that. Um, And I didn't really have the right... Um, sort of mental health uh, concepts to process that very effectively at the time. And um, there were huge protests all around the country. I didn't do anything to organize those protests, but I went to a lot of them and it was mind blowing to me at the time as a uh, teenager, young adult. And um, then by... Ooh. maybe late 2000s, maybe around 2009, 2010, I started getting involved in um, uh, activism and organizing and not just going to protests, but like um, volunteering with different campaigns or trying to help organize protests, um, going to lobby days. And I would say I'm still in a learning phase. It's just I've, I've been learning a lot over the last 15 years. Awesome. That's a really good answer. Um, you're so authentic and genuine in who you are. Was was embracing your identity a process? Like, I know you said that, like, it took you, like, a long while to, like, process to really grasp, like, what everything meant. Like, mm-hmm. was there, like, how did you embrace that? And, like, how, how did you find, like, what did you find that helped with processing what was going on? Well, yes. I hope 
everyone is able to grow and heal to a point where they can celebrate themselves. And I hope that people uh, have others in their life that can help celebrate them. Um, because, you know, often it's helpful to do that in a community, um, for real. But also, um, yeah, the short answer is no, I was not always like that. Um, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of narratives about, oh, this person, you know, realized they were trans in this way, or, oh, this person, this is this person's coming out of the closet story about being queer. But then if we zoom out from there, um, a lot of people, including myself, struggle just with being honest with ourselves and with other people. Um, if you think about it, a lot of our social norms are actually a little bit dishonest. I'm not saying we're out there defrauding people, right? But like, you know, we're... One of our traditional greetings in our society is, how are you? And you're supposed to say, oh, I'm good. Which is honestly a little bit desensitizing because it's usually not true. Or even if it is, um, like you can't tell the difference. So when I was younger, um, I think I, I wasn't clear with myself about what my emotions were, what my motivations were, what my desires were. Um, and that's broadly in life. That's not just having to do with gender or sexual orientation or anything. And then, and I certainly wasn't honest with other people. And often I would just sort of compulsively lie, not even in ways that would benefit me. Like at one point I couldn't keep track of who I told that I'd learned to skateboard, which I hadn't. Um, <laughs> and so I think that, you know, I, I, I could tell a longer story about like the path of uh, coming out or the path of realizing I was trans. But I think the bigger, for me, the bigger theme in life has been um, embracing the kind of vulnerability uh, that comes with being honest and open and sincere with other people and myself. And I think that, at least for me and so some other people I've talked to, that, that sort of creates a feedback loop. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think is that, and I'd love to fit this in somewhere, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, we're born into whatever decade we're born in. People were being born hundreds of years ago, right? And they just were born into whatever past society and they all still had different personalities, which I love thinking about, you know, like there were jokers and serious people and people that were always sad and people getting anxious and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like at all times for thousands of years. And, but we're only like, you're born and then people tell you what concepts are out there. They're like, this is how the world works. And like later on, you can form your own opinions about it. But um, when I was growing up, we didn't use the, we didn't have the internet, right? And so a lot of what I just was exposed to fewer um, possibilities or ideas of like ways to be a person. And despite that, uh, I knew in elementary school that I didn't know the word yet, but in elementary school, I knew that I was bi. And that's partly why I think it's odd when people and I, I do know that some adults are still doing this when they're like oh we can't talk to the kids about 
um, being queer or gay or whatever it is, because you know that's we have to wait till they're older. Meanwhile, we're walking around asking seven year olds if they have a plan for their wedding. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I think that as a young child, I knew I was like, oh, I'm already getting picked on just for being a like weird nerdy little kid. <laughs> and so, like, and I was like, oh wait. I have already caught on that this is not a people do not like it. If you uh, have these feelings, I should not say this out loud. And um, which is not what I'm advising people to do. I'm just saying that was my experience. I consciously was like, I'm going to decide not to tell anyone. Realizing I was trans was very different because I had never heard of trans people. And then later in the nineties, I'd sort of heard of them, but only in these very, um, you know, like the, like the killer in Silence of the Lambs, I think, is a trans person, perhaps. You know, only in these really negative ways. Um, and so it didn't, I just thought uh, that those sort of feelings and were not only confusing, but I thought like, well, if I look into that any further, I'll probably find out there's something really terribly wrong with me. I'll just try to ignore that part of my mind. Um, and I don't recommend that to people. I think that... Uh, the more we can be honest with ourselves, the more we can be honest with other people. And, um, you know, it is good to consider your safety, but like also, um, that's probably the best kind of life we can have is where we find a way to be in a community where we can be authentic. Yeah. I love that. So going back to one of my questions that I didn't happen to ask because I just had this one. What are some of the struggles that you faced through your experiences? What brought you healing and what helped you to get through the tougher situations? Hmm. Or like, what did you find to inspire you to kind of help you in the moments that got tough? Yeah. Honestly, uh, in retrospect, um, I've been really lucky to have friends that, especially in my um, early 20s when I was first starting to lose my vision I was really I was really upset and sometimes I would be really angry um, and sometimes I would just sort of try to escape from my reality uh, I would yeah, drink a lot or party or just try to, um, anything to sort of distract myself from what was happening. And, um, and I thought, uh, and I, there's some people that I've been friends with since like before I started losing my vision, uh, that I met in my first year, I'd sort of gone to pit, uh, as a first year student. And then I decided I was going to drop out. And I might go back later, but I was like, you know what? I did. I got into engineering school. I got A's and B's. I actually don't want to do this right now. I want to figure out who I am and I want to figure out things about life and like all the different ways there are to be a person. This is so exciting. I'm just going to do my summer job like I had last year and then I'm going to pick a city and I'm going to move there. And then suddenly I woke up and like my vision was like dissolving because it was very quick when it came on. And um, I went back to my parents' house. They're all great, wonderful, loving people, but I, at the time, really needed a lot of independence. I was just, I'd had a very sort of suffocating high school experience with a lot of 
my uh, so-called peers uh, not really bonding with me or being nice to me. And so I really needed some space. And instead I was back there and relearning how to like tie my shoes and make peanut butter sandwiches and stuff. And um, that time, that whole, hmm, I'd say up maybe 19 to like 27 was pretty chaotic. And uh, maybe not always inspiring, but I think that it's possible to create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where we just say like, oh, I'm really depressed or I feel very upset and it's never going to change or that means there's something else wrong with me. See, I knew it. And um, so maybe the lesson to take from there is like, uh, even if it kind of feels like whatever's happening right now is going to go on forever, it often doesn't. I love that. That whole before we go into the next question, I just want to thank you for your honesty. And like we said before, you're very genuine authenticity because um i mean your story is so complex and you have so many like valuable parts to you that it seems like extremely important to your identity and mm -hmm. i know for sure that many of our listeners can at least relate to part of your story mm -hmm. and um the fact that you can speak to so many experiences is uh i mean in a way it mm -hmm. seems like it's painful i mean it would, like some of that might have been like a painful experience to grow up with but at the same time i know how much how big of an impact they're going to make on um a lot of our our audience members so thank you for sharing those things with us uh, it means a lot and that's exactly what like we that's what exactly what we hope these conversations hold is that ability mm -hmm. to really speak to uh people who can relate to some of the experiences that you're sharing about. So thank you. Yeah. That, you know, that something else that to spring to mind um, is like what I've been working through maybe recent in recent years is coming to accept that like, um, you know, like I've processed a lot of the trauma of suddenly losing my vision. Um, and I've processed a lot of the sort of trauma or challenges from my adolescence. But I, um, I was, I've been reading things that different disability activists have written over the last few decades. And, re and I've been reading them recently. And, and I'm very... I don't usually retain quotes properly, so I wish I could quote an actual person in their own <laughs> words, but I can't. Um, but it's been really powerful to me recently to reflect on the idea that um, it's okay if you are upset about what you're experiencing in life, it's okay to be upset about it. So whether that's people bullying you or um, some sort of misfortune or that you've acquired it uh, disability that's making your life harder, whatever it is, like, um, you can be in a process of healing while at the same time, like, we don't have to be out there as, like, this inspiring example of, like, and I got over it and I'm ready to climb Everest. Look at me. I'm on a poster, 
you know? It's okay to be like, yeah, I'm kind of sad today. Like every day is different, like just yeah. kind of one day at a time, basically. Yeah, yeah, because in the end, it's like, I think it's really important to think about how our actions and words and energy is affecting the other people around us, but like our inner life doesn't have to be in response to other people's expectations. Yeah, right. I absolutely love that. I think, like you said, like honesty is like the best thing that like, I think we all can learn from it. It's just like being honest is can be challenging, but it can also mm-hmm. be really good because then there's a better knowledge and understanding of like, hey, like this is what's happening. Like, here's what they need, you know, like it's important. And I think there's not enough of that. And the fact that that's yeah. what you're sharing is valuable for, I think, a lot of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that like we all need to hear that at some point in time. So yeah. going into the next question, much of your life and your time and energy is spent on at the advocacy part and the activism part and so many other things. Um, can you tell us a bit about like what the experience has been like and like what inspired you to get to be able to do this type of work? Mm. So, um, I don't, I don't think I have like a powerful origin story. I think I, when I was uh, a teenager or in middle school, even certainly in high school, kind of romanticized different, um, activists and uh revolutionary leaders and and people i saw in pictures in magazines where they were you know tearing down a fence or standing on top of a tank or something you know i often didn't know what was the context was right um but um what i think what i've been involved in uh is i worked for almost 10 years at uh, the Thomas Merton Center, which is a, a like an activist resource center working on a whole variety of issues in Pittsburgh uh, that's 50-something um, years old now. It's a 50-something year old organization. Um, and it was started during the anti-war movement um, when the Vietnam War was still going on. Um, and I'm also still like very involved in uh, Pittsburghers for Public Transit, where we organize, um, when I say organize, I mean, we do a lot of going and talking to people uh, out on the sidewalk or at bus stops, at, at neighborhood meetings, um, just regular people, talk to them about what they're experiencing and what would make their life better. And then we get them to take action together. Um, and then when I worked at, at uh, the Merton Center, a lot of what we did uh, involved larger um marches or rallies or different kinds of protests and disruptive actions we would also do things like lobby days around specific um issues with like statewide coalitions around things like uh, the driving pa forward campaign to get uh to allow people um to take the driver's test and get a driver's license even if they uh don't have all of their uh, proper immigration documents. Um, that's it. Turns out one of the main ways that people get detained and deported is uh, just racial profiling and traffic stops. Um, and then uh, we did a, a um, I think one campaign that I'm really proud of uh, 
was the the Port Authority was going to hire a lot of extra police and have them um, uh, go through, starting with the T with the train, and then the plan was to move them to the busway as well uh, to check that people had paid their fare. Um, and that the idea was they were going to get these new fare machines and then you could theoretically just walk past it. So they were then going to hire a bunch of police to check if you had paid it. And then if you lost your receipt or you hadn't paid it, because some people just don't or like they don't have change and they got to get to work or they're going to get fired or maybe they're a kid and they skip the line. But then, um, then you could get, uh, I forget what the, you know, you'd get criminal charges. Um, and also if you have thousands of extra police interactions, um, especially when people are, uh, experiencing um like mental health uh issue or or the police officer is reacting poorly to what the person's normally experiencing it can get violent or dangerous very quickly and it took a year and this big campaign we'd be in the news all the time get all these different community organizations to sign on to letters and come testify and by the end of the year we'd gotten a port authority to back away and the county executive to change their plan and not do it because it would have been really dangerous. The thing is you could have gotten a college sophomore to write a term paper on why it was a bad idea. It wasn't like that they didn't understand. It was just, I think sometimes when people, uh, when decision makers have already set up, set on a plan, their instinct is not to change it. Yeah. And so sometimes we have to really make sure that they understand like what they're doing yeah. and how that's going to affect yeah. other people. And it I helps love- them to see the people. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're right. good. Keep going. Uh-huh. No, but it just helps to see the people and have someone be like, I am a real person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like, and you need to understand, like, how that's going to affect. Yeah. That's, I love that answer. I think that's a very honest answer. I think that's very cool to hear, like, how you guys got together, like, came up with this idea and said, something needs to happen, something needs to change, and here's how it's going to affect everyone if we don't. So mm-hmm. I love that response. Okay, so going on to our next question, we want people to understand what it's like to have disability through your perspectives and experiences, as opposed to misrepresentation in mainstream media. What do you want the world to know? And I just want to add to that question because for uh, those of us who do not live with a disability, uh, I also want to know, I guess, your preference or uh, like, would you would you call yourself somebody who lives with a disability? What's like the, I guess, proper personal term to use? Mm-hmm. And like, what's the most, um, yeah, I guess that just goes along with the question. What can what can we learn, uh, even just in terms of simply addressing uh, this experience? Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I really embrace, uh, I mean, honestly, I wish I wasn't blind. Like, I liked it better uh before most of my optic nerve cells had died and i could see uh make eye contact with people and you have that like sort of laser soul transfer that happens which is totally magical and uh, and colors are great and most of them are faded out now um but so that said uh i i've really come to embrace uh, the concept and the identity of being a person with a disability. And it's in a different way than um, than coming to embrace being open and out about being trans and queer, where I'm like, 
ta-da, look at me. <laughs> but like, uh, it's showtime, you know, but like with, um, cause this is maybe not celebratory for me, but it is something where, um, I definitely identify, I would say at least culturally and politically as a person with a disability. And to me, that means being in solidarity with other people who have other disabilities or, or blind too, I guess, you know, also, but being in solidarity with, um, people with all variety of disabilities, um, and doing the cultural and political work, um, to improve our lives collectively. Uh, and in some of these things, like, um, are cultural in the sense of like, it's, um, we have a lot of unexamined or continuing stigmas in our society around people with disabilities. And some of it is really going to be changes in policy and legislation. And sometimes that's not maybe might not say disability in the, in the name of the policy, but, uh, you know, right now we're using sort of across the board in most parts of the country, we're really using police and jails to, uh, I'm trying to think of a really even slightly appropriate word. Uh, that's our government's major and society's major solution uh, or what we can offer to people who um, uh, have various disabilities. Often they just end up in jail. And um, that doesn't have to be that way. Uh, but maybe the law that will laws that would change that don't all look like they're not maybe going to say like, this is just for people with disabilities. Then for me, uh, I, when I first started losing my vision, um, I literally wouldn't say I struggled, like physically struggled to say the word blind out loud. And like, I have a distinct memory of being in a long line in a, uh, to get a sandwich in this loud room. And the poor guy behind the counter is trying to say like, well, man, he's up there. And I'm like, and I keep saying really fast, like tripping over my own words. Oh, I don't know because I can't read it because I have a minor vision problem. I have a minor vision problem, so I can't read it. I have a minor vision problem, so I can't read it. First of all, it wasn't minor, but also he couldn't tell what I was saying. Cause I was like, just, unable to like even physically express these words. Um, and that's because of how upset I was at the time about what was happening. But um, a big shift for me, like a big lesson that I'm still trying to figure out how to impart to people that haven't experienced it is like, I think there is going to be something unavoidably traumatic and painful about like age 19, suddenly with no warning, you start going blind. That'd be a shakeup for a lot of people. But I didn't start use. I use a, uh, I use a cane. I use a white cane. And um, that way it helps me with things like the stairs and not running into phone poles and stuff. But also it's really helpful because it lets other people know that I probably can't see them. Um, and it lets drivers know that it lets people know that I'm not shoplifting, you know, all this stuff. Um, so it has practical benefits, but I didn't start using one until 2009. So that's like eight years. Mm -hmm. So from the time that I started losing my vision and, um, 
when I did, it was like overnight. Um, it was as though everyone had had a secret meeting without me. Uh, or that I had like some kind of sign on my forehead that I just didn't know was there. Like suddenly everyone wasn't interacting with me. They were interacting with this cane. And it was as though every time I met a new person or a stranger or went anywhere, uh, I couldn't, it's as though there was all these like clumsy extra layers that people couldn't see through or even hear me through. Um, and they were interacting with all of their concepts of what uh, disability is. Or, or I often I do have a theory that I think some people might, might be um, I don't think that people usually have like hostile feelings towards people with disabilities in the way that um, that some people are like virulently racist or uh, homophobic. Um, but I think that people have a lot of really harmful ideas in their minds. Sometimes they're not even aware of them. And then also uh, they, um, I think sometimes people are afraid of imagining themselves losing their vision. You know, I'm not a mind reader. I don't know if that's what's going on, but I think that is happening with some people. And so really this, that like overnight sudden shift in like the way everyone was interacting with me when I started using the cane um, was by then I'd adjusted enough to being blind psychologically that I had enough free headspace to really recognize what was happening. And it was like really, um, but I, I didn't talk to people about it at the time. And, and I sort of regret that because I had friends I could have talked to about it and I'm still friends with them. And now I've talked to them about it. Um, but at the time I think I was just really trying to power through everything. Yeah. That's a really, really good response. I love that. Um, if we were living in an ideal world where all neurotypes and abilities were celebrated automatically, naturally, or unequivocally, uh, there we go, yeah. Um, what would that look like, and how can we all as allies and friends make that world a reality? Wow. I, I have some ideas about the path to get there. I honestly struggle to imagine exactly what that would look like, but the, I think the path to get there involves us um, thinking intersectionally, right? So if, if we were going to be in a future or if we were going to be in a present in a world where um, all neurotypes and abilities are celebrated and included, um, I don't think we can do that unless we're also simultaneously addressing... Um, you know, racism and misogyny and homophobia. Uh, both because I think when you start working on examining um, the kind of uh, stigmas and negative ideas that, that are connected to those kinds of bias, you know, um, I think when you start delving into one part of your mind to see what kind of... Uh, harmful ideas are in there that people put there. Uh, they just came from our society, you know? Um, 
you notice things about others, other ideas, right? So I think it's like a self-healing, collective healing process to you start anywhere, change everything. Um, but then also uh, we can't usually, often we can't really separate people's um, disability experience from the other aspects of their identity, you know? Yeah. yeah. And honestly, if we're going to really include people, like, um, I think that part of that, um, a lot of it's going to have to be cultural. Just like, how are people treated? How can we change the way we're interacting with people so their day is less exhausting? But some of it is going to have to be structural or policy-based around things like, um, you know, uh, the world gets a little bit more accessible, um, the more money you have or the more access to services, right? So, um, like there are people like me who aren't going to be able to drive. Um, and we could imagine a world where everyone gets a driverless car, except everyone's not going to get one. And, um, but free public transit and trains that went between every city would be great for everybody, you know? Um, so it's like, I think some of it is, some of it's cultural and some of it's going to just be about reducing inequality in our society overall. That's a really true statement. And I love that. I think that that's definitely something that I think a lot of us are trying to do, especially me. Like I'm trying to make a policy work. I'm trying to mm-hmm. have lawmakers be like, Hey, like, yes, everyone. And there's a lot of people who have access to a lot of great things, but there, there's not enough for mm-hmm. those who are struggling who don't have access especially if they don't have the money or if right. they don't have transportation to get there or if they just they don't have access to wi-fi or if they don't have access to like that health care that they need like that there needs to be a better change in that and that there needs to be a better support system for that and making that more accessible and especially for living too like having wheelchair bound homes that have wheelchair ramps or mm-hmm. having like especially for blind people, like a way to get into their homes mm-hmm. when they can't see, like have, just having a better access to more easily accessible things that I think could make a difference for a lot of people who are asking for that. So I love that response. That was a great response that you gave us. Um, do you have a favorite song, an album, a book, or just a hobby or artwork, or even a quote that helped you heal or just bring happiness? Whoa. Um... I feel like every time I'm interviewed, I should come in prepared with a favorite song. Um, <laughs> I made a little playlist with all of our guests' answers, so get ready because your mm. answer will be added to our playlist. Right. And also, you can ask later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, you know, we can always come back to that question. Like, no, I'm just no. not sure. We can always come back. No, um, yeah, I mean, I, t- I could totally email later. Uh, recently, I've been, I mean, I guess when I say recently, I mean like in my 30s and now I'm 41. Uh, I've been increasingly into, um, uh, I've been getting more and more, I guess, returning to like electronic dance music. Oh, that's fun. Um, but when I was younger, I used to be really into punk rock. Um, and one of my favorite bands was the Subhumans. Um, but, uh, and I think they, they have a lot of, uh, 
I was also really into Crass and Conflict. Basically, a lot of these bands that were um, uh, anarchist punk bands from the United Kingdom, uh, from England, Scotland, in uh, the 80s, which I didn't know about them in the 80s because that was, uh, you know, in Head Start and stuff, right? <laughs> but, like, but they, um, that interestingly to me, for me, was like an entry point to a lot of uh, really radical ideas. Now, I don't think me sitting there like listening to a CD in 2002 was doing anything for the world around me, right? But like, because there's the ideas you have and then there's like what you're doing. But like, um, especially as someone who was like, but then you could use the internet, but there wasn't it wasn't even like typical, I don't think, like for everyone to do it every day all the time, like now. Um, and I think that a lot of those, uh, um, a lot of those anarchist punk bands like really introduced me to what were mind blowing ideas at the time mm -hmm. about things like um, patriarchy and misogyny and uh, um the function of police um, and uh, homophobia. I mean, I remember hearing um, this song about, I don't even remember the band. It was one of these bands where this sort of sounds like they're yelling the whole time. But like, it was about... Uh, Two, you know, two men holding hands and they're like walking down the street and it's like this very sort of aggro punk song, but they, um, you know, that's at the time when like one of the hit songs on alternative radio was Weezer's Pink Triangle, which when it comes down to it is a song about a straight man wishing he could hook up with a lesbian and complaining about it. So, um, yeah, so that was like, at this point, like maybe not the energy I'm looking for, like I'm not into yelling and stuff, but when I was younger, um, those bands were really helpful to like expanding my worldview. Yeah. Oh, that's really good to know. What's your answer? For song-wise? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, there's so many good ones. I'll try to keep it short. Um, I think one of my favorites is for King and Country. I don't know if you've heard them. They're like a very Christian like band. What's it called? For, uh, for King and Country. Okay. They're a very like Christian organized band. They're mm -hmm. they're very talented in what they do. Um, one of their I can actually name one of their songs. It's called Burn the Ships. It was basically about like if you felt like you were alone, if you felt like you were depressed, if you felt like you know like your life wasn't worth it anymore. That like or like if it, it was basically like, telling it was a little bit about like their life story. Like they had his wife got pregnant and he was addicted to like opioids and. His mm. wife was also addicted to opioids at the time because of all the pain and yeah, yeah. that, like, it doesn't, you don't have to end your life to find happiness. Like, if you're struggling, that, like, there's support out there that, like, you can reach out and ask for help, that, like, you're not the only person who is fighting in that, like, there's a lot of people who are probably addicted to drugs mm. who are really mentally struggling to figure out, like, their life or, like, what their life is worth. So, like, it was basically just saying, like, that like you're not alone that like there's people who are wanting to help you if you can reach out and ask for that help that like not everyone's always able to like not everyone feels mm -hmm. confident enough to reach out but like knowing if 
only you could reach out and that person would be there to like kind of help guide you through that and help you kind of get clean or help you mm-hmm. just really figure out like what am I meant for like what am I here for like what what is my life worth if I don't understand like it's just saying that like it you don't have to end your life mm-hmm. you know like there's there's people who can help you and that like you you can you can get better like there there's people out there who want to help like you just have to be the one to kind of reach out and be like I need that help. So that's beautiful. Cause like asking for help can be really hard. And I feel like, um, even though I don't think people intend to do this, I think we, uh, our cultural norms sort of make it harder for people to ask for help. And when we do ask for help, I think, you know, sometimes we're asking a person who can't come through in the moment for us in the way we need. And that's okay. But when other people, I like to think that when I ask for help, other people see it and it feels more okay for them to ask for help too. Yeah. At least that's how I have decided to insist on looking at it after years of uh, trying to work through the baggage so I could just ask people for help. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really spot on answer. Um, here at FC, our core mission is to be a good friend. How has friendship and connection with others played a role in your life or journey? Um, I think I, um, I am fortunate to have like been surrounded by uh, really supportive friends throughout all of adulthood um and i wasn't always i mean i'd like to think i'm a good friend now (laughs) but but i i know for sure that i wasn't always um and i think that uh it's it's really you know i've had people uh say you know like sort of set a boundary and be like you're just being too chaotic we can't can't be your friend right now or maybe forever um but i've also i think done that as well i think that it's like there's something really powerful about going through multiple phases of life with the same people um and um I'm also a person that like, I process a lot of things out loud and in conversation. I'm very externally motivated uh, for better or worse, you know? Um, I've always kind of admired people that are more self-contained, <laughs> but like, um, I really need people. And sometimes I've surrounded myself with other people that were hurting a lot and we weren't actually supporting each other very well. And sometimes I've been surrounded by people that were holding space for me to heal. And sometimes I've been there for other people when they needed someone. Um, I guess the, it's such a profound question and I really wish I had a more insightful answer. The, the, the one thing that I've been thinking about um, in recent years is like, we're not gonna have the same, even when we have positive relationships with our friends and acquaintances and loved ones, Um, We're not going to have the same relationships with all of them. 
And so different people are going to support us in different ways at different times. And we're going to be there for other people in different ways at different times. It doesn't all have to be this one-on-one transaction, you yeah. know? I think that's really special. And I think that you bring a really good point to that. I think that is actually really important to have a lot of like supportive people who can help kind of be a part of mm-hmm. that part of life of like when you struggle that like you're not alone in it like there's someone who's going to be there to help kind of give you support and answers when you need it so um well Gabriel thank you so much for um being willing to contribute and share your story for being able to just share experiences of like what it's been like thank you um so for a recap in today's episode we talked about uh what we talked about today was basically like life experiences and just how being um having all these different type of experiences can really help to inspire others and to help really hope that we can help bring better awareness to all different types of unique circumstances. So um, today we hope that you'll continue to grow with us as we share inspirational friendship and that mental health stories and resources in our future episodes. I mean, this was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, And I don't know if people are working on outgrowing this idea, hopefully, but I know for me when I was growing up, there was this big idea of like friendship loyalty and like you should stand by your friends no matter what. But often that meant things like if your friend hurts someone, you should side with your friend and instead of being like, I'm going to actually be there for my friend in a genuine way by helping them process what they've done and sort of being part of um, being honest with them and, and, ask, and hold, sort of holding them accountable as well. And there's been people that have done that with, for me. Um, and even if they didn't react well at the time, like those are really important people in my life, you know, and it's, you're, we're really doing people a disservice if we're like, well, that's my friend. So they're automatically right. And you're automatically wrong as though we're just on red team, blue team or something. You know? Yeah. It's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you, Gabriel. We really, really appreciate having you here. And Abby, you as well for being yeah, such an course. awesome host. This was such a mm-hmm. beautiful conversation. I love doing this. So. It was such a um, valuable conversation for us to listen to. Okay, so all together we can say signing off from Friends on Air. Ready? Three, two, one. Signing Signing off from from Friends on Air. Air.